Hi, this is Douglas Bauer. Please call me Doug. And I'm about to have a great conversation with Rick Flynn about my new novel, The Beckoning World, published by the University of Iowa Press. Rick has been kind enough to invite me on, and I'm really keen to have a good conversation with him. So stay tuned. You're listening to Rick Flynn. With a shout out from London Town, it's Rick Flynn presents... Now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. It has been said that beyond being a storyteller, the novelist is also by default a sociologist, a historian, and a psychologist. And if they're any good, they're a magician too. Our book today, ladies and gentlemen, is written by today's guest. It is called The Beckoning World. It is a novel. And here is the author of that novel, our special guest today, Douglas Bauer, coming into us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Come on in here, Douglas. Thank you for appearing on the show. Pleasure to have you. Pleasure's mine. Thanks so much for the invitation. You have written a book which has got a whole lot going on in it. And I mean, there's just so much going on. It's rather, uh, it's like a smorgasbord. I don't really know where to begin. And a lot of it is in, and you write a lot in general about Iowa. Are you originally from there? I am. I am. A little town of about 800 people right in the center of the state, close to Des Moines, but very much distant in another way from Des Moines. So yeah, I was raised in that town and I I went to college in Iowa and even my first job. So I was about 25 years old when I first left. Oh, you were there basically your whole life. Yeah, well, my certainly um, all my childhood and my young adulthood. Uh, and then um, I, uh, I found work. I, I got a job in Chicago moved with my wife to Chicago. And that was really my first city. And the world sort of opened up to me at that point. Right. The scales fell from my eyes, as, I, as you might say. Now, when in your lifetime did you make the transition and become an author? Um, I started as a freelance journalist, a, a you know, magazine writer. And um, I did that for, gosh, maybe five or six or seven years. So I was traveling all over the country, writing magazine pieces and just, um, you know, making my living doing that. And it was during that time, and I, that would have put me in my late 20s, early 30s, I uh, wrote my first book, which was not a novel, but a, a, a nonfiction book that took uh, me back to the little town I just mentioned, where I grew up. And I wrote a book about going back to that town and living there for about a year and a half after having left and lived in Chicago. So I was it was kind of like answering the question, can you go home again? But I was probably 30, 31 when that first book was written. 
Wow. And what a difference. Iowa to Chicago and then back. Yes, indeed. I underestimated, frankly, Rick, just how much of a difference there was. I I sort of thought, oh, this will be easy enough. You know, I'll just take a year and go back and observe the place. And it was, uh, needless to say, it was a lot more challenging than that. But all in all, a tremendous experience. I got to know the place where I grew up in a way that I certainly didn't growing up there. And uh, so I have nothing but... uh, uh, admiration for the people and the experience of being back. So in other words, you got to know your original roots, so to speak, when you went back as a grown adult. You were mature at the time. Um, exactly, exactly. Perfectly said. I think at least it's true for me, and I, I have a hunch perhaps for most of us that we don't really pay attention to you know things like uh, what makes us and what our roots are and what influences us while we're children growing up in a place. We're much too occupied with our own lives and our social lives and all those those considerations. So yeah, um, I had that perception of, first of all, being 30 years old, but then also of having been a, away from the place for several years. All right. Now about your wife, is she in academia? Is she a professor or a teacher? Is she an author or is she totally unrelated? <laughs> well, actually, um, uh, the the wife I mentioned that uh, uh, when we moved to Chicago was my first marriage, and I'm now remarried uh, and have been for a very long time. And uh, my current wife uh, is is in fact also an author, a very uh, a very fine one. So and she has taught not as routinely as I do. But um, we certainly have plenty to talk about professionally. And it even gets to the point sometimes when we're sitting at dinner and we each know what we're writing about. And we start to talk about our characters as if you know, they're, they're real people sitting with us. And you know, we say, well, I don't know if he would do that. or I don't believe. Or, yeah, that was that works very well for her. So a lot of shop talk. Oh, I believe that. And so I've had actresses, actors uh, uh-huh. on the shows over the years, and they do the exact same thing. Sure. It's, a, it's only natural. And what a, what a gift to be able to, you know, bounce ideas and get uh, get get uh, perceptions from uh, the person you're living with and whose opinion you value so much. It's it's really a gift. That is for sure. Correct. I've been to Iowa many times, not just once or yeah. oh, countless times. I can't uh-huh. I cannot remember them all. But and people <laughs> say, well, there's nothing to do and this, that. And you know what I like? The land is flat. You don't see a lot of hills there. And they have these expansive pastures, if you will, filled up with nothing but those gigantic turbines and propellers that harvest the wind. And I always say, why can't every state do this? Where, why am I not seeing that? Hardly any, where I live, I could go to one warehouse that I know of, one and I see behind there one small, not like what they have in Iowa, the <laughs> gigantic ones, one tiny little spinning wind propeller. Why am I not seeing what Iowa is doing nationwide, if you have a clue? I don't, except to say that I would, from memory, say that uh, Iowa is uniquely gifted <laughs> with wind as a source Um, because of the terrain and the open spaces. You know, I grew up on a farm. My father was a grain farmer, a much smaller farm than uh, what 
farming has become. Uh, this was, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And he farmed with his grandfather, uh, with his father, my grandfather. So I'm, I'm very much, uh, you know, steeped in the memory of what it was like to step outside and feel the wind hit your face. This was long before, you know, we came to this point where we realized what an energy source the wind could be. But I am proud of my home state for sort of recognizing that, as you say so well and taking advantage of it. So I, I, that's as much as I can say in answer to your question. It's just so uniquely suited for, uh, for wind as a source of power. I would like to see that grow and grow and be used in every, oh, every state. It makes common sense to me. It, it really does. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, where I live now in, in, in Cambridge, Boston, of course, we're right uh, on the water. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of wind, wind farms uh, that are coming up out of the, out of the out of the water here on around Cape Cod and Nantucket and so it's happening but probably not as not as rapidly as some of us would like including you and me all right we're going to get to the book and that's why you're here today it is called the beckoning world a novel but before we go there if somebody wants to look you up and actually enroll at Bennington College or Bennington, yeah, Bennington College, yeah, where right. you are a core faculty member, tell them about the writing program that you work for and how does one sign up for that? Well, I'm grateful for the question. The master's in fine arts degree, which is uh, the degree that's awarded at the end of a two-year period of study, it results from a, a kind of a unique pedagogy, if you will. It's called a low residency master's program, and there are several of them around the country. And what that really means is, as a student, you meet with the population as a whole twice a year on campus, Bennington's in southern Vermont, for 10-day residencies. And those 10-day residencies are just jam-packed with lectures and workshops and very, very stimulating 10 days. I always come home from them sort of wonderfully exhausted. But in between those two 10-day residencies, one in January, one in June, you as a student then work one-on-one -on -one electronically, you know, back and forth through uh, uh, emails with the teacher that you're assigned to work with. So every month, you as a student send the, your teacher so many pages of whatever it is you're writing and also a report on what you're reading. And then the teacher reads, comments, and sends it back to you. And that rhythm just moves month to month to month to month over the course of a semester. So that's the rough sort of outline of how the program works. And in terms of applying, I'm, you can just go to bennington.edu and you'll find all you need to know uh, if you just click on MFA. Right. That means Master's in Fine Arts and I am to assume that you must have an undergrad bachelor degree to enroll in your program. Would that be correct? Actually, you do not have to have a bachelor's. That's oh. one of the things that, that we really uh, take pride in. It's 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 based purely on what we, you know, you have to submit a sample of your writing and you're judged on the basis of that. Uh, of that sample. And if uh, the faculty uh, sees sufficient potential 
in the writing that the student or the prospective student sends. Degree does not matter. So you can go from high school straight to an MFA, assuming you have the talent to write. Exactly so. Thank you for the education. (laughs) I've Mm -hmm. never heard of such a thing. Being a Miami of Ohio boy, you Ah, see. Ah, sure, sure, sure. Yes, one of the Ivy League schools of the Midwest. I loved it there. You know that's a good school. Oh, I do indeed. I do indeed. Yes. Absolutely. All righty. Now... Let me tell you something before we proceed here. I had a doctor come on here, and we aired that program in January, on the 25th of January. It was episode 121, and his name was Dr. J. Baruch, B-E-R-U-C-H. And Mm -hmm. what he did, he was an emergency room doctor. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book called Tornado of Life, Mm -hmm. A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER. Okay, now follow me. Next week, in about eight days from now, I'm going to interview another doctor. This gentleman is from Nashville. His name is Dr. David Alfrey, A-L-F-R-E-Y. That will be our episode 135. He is a cardiac anesthesiologist, and he's the author of a book called Savings Grace, What Patients Teach Their Doctors About Life, Death, and the Balance in Between. And both of these doctors, even though I've not interviewed the second one yet, but based upon what I now know from the first one and others that I've done over the years. They say that when you are a doctor, the premise of both books, I'm sure, is that the doctor has to listen because not everything you hear is verbatim directly about the various malady that they are allegedly going through. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the patient is there because they respect your intelligence. They respect the advice you can give them. They want to share with you something unrelated to the disease. Perhaps it's a domestic matter, something with the children, something with their significant other. Perhaps it's unrelated to domestic at all. It could be occupational. But at any rate, the point is the doctors are starting to write books and gentlemen like me are being offered these guests so that we can find out that the patient appears for more than you would say, well, I've got a cut here on my arm. Will you bandage it up so I can get out of here? No, 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 no. It's a lot deeper than that. And the reason I bring that up, sir, is that your book, I believe, and I want you to correct me if you think I'm out of line and wrong. I think your book is a primer, if you will, on what happens when you fall in love. (laughs) 
I totally agree. I, I couldn't underscore that um, assessment on your part any any more strongly. As you said at the very outset, uh, uh, there is a whole lot going on in this book in terms of its story. But for me, it is a love story. It's a love story uh, between a, a young man named Earl and a young woman named Emily. And then in the second half of the book, it's a, a second of love story between father and son, between the same Earl and uh, the son Henry of the marriage of Earl and Emily. And for whatever else is happening, and there is a, a lot else happening, this, the the through line, if you will, of uh, of the of the story as I imagined it, and as I think um, I wrote it or tried to write it, is a very it's a very careful exploration of what it means to fall in love and the complexity of a love that's as deep and as uh, complicated as that love of Earl and Emily and all the complications that ensue. That's a long-winded way of answering you and saying, I think you're spot on. Right. Our show is listened to a lot in the United Kingdom, in the UK, and there's a British band called Foreigner, and they had a number one hit record, not only in the UK, but it also hit number one over here in the USA, and it was called I Want to Know what love is. And, <laughs> if you want to know what love is, your book, The Beckoning World, I think does a pretty substantial job of not only telling you what love is, but showing you what love is in the myriad of characters that you have in here. You have mm. the young man that grew up with basically an abusive father in the coal mining town. And I hated to see that. Alcoholism, I believe, was a good cause of that abuse. You won't yeah. argue with that, will you? No, not at all. No, that's and, definitely and, a, a, yeah. yeah, that caused the meanness, if you will, of the father. And when you're hooked on that and you don't have it, people, let's face it, they get mean. Yeah. Well, certainly Earl's father did. And um, I'm not giving too much away when I say that as a result of it, Earl, um, as a teenager, he was uh, about 17 years old. Finally, it had enough and fled and stayed away for the rest of his life. And it seemed to me a decision of survival on Earl's part, a very brave one, but he did do it. And so, yes, that is that is one of the complicating uh, relationships in the in the novel, for sure. Right. Now, the dad was a coal miner. Mm -hmm. He was. And yep. the son, Earl, he was mm -hmm. also even as a child, uh, yeah. he worked in, in the mines. He worked on the conveyor line. Uh, he, right. he used to pick out bad pieces of coal and get rid of them. And and you said in the book something about, if I, my memory is right, he could not wear gloves when he did that. And sometimes the pieces of coal would cut his hands. Why couldn't he wear gloves, if if I could ask? Well, my, what my research uh, sh sh told me was that the, the, the companies, the people that, who owned these coal mines, believed that it uh, was harder for the, the boys who, ran, who sat uh, and watched these conveyor belts of coal go past and whose job it was to pick out the, the impurities, that they would have a more difficult time reaching in and, and grasping if they wore gloves. So it's just a matter 
matter of a kind of manual dexterity that they valued and that therefore they prohibited the boys from wearing protective gloves. And I guess that was a common, you know, one of many completely abusive practices of child labor at that time. This job that young Earl at, at 12 years old had, as you described it so well, uh, they were called breaker boys. Uh, again, as I researched the book, they sat there for 12 hours a day, just watching for the pieces of slate, which is the chief impurity. And that's the one that would cut your hands, slice them up pretty, uh, sometimes pretty severely. Now, didn't he do that even as a child, six days a week? Yeah. Yeah. And again, historically, that uh, that was that was their working week they had sunday when they did not work otherwise they were there all sunday sunday was a good day for him because he had something going on which is still beloved in this great country that we're in and tell them what that is, sir. Uh, yeah, he played baseball. He played baseball uh, uh, almost uh, dawn to dusk. Um, he loved it. Games. And yeah, he was he good. Did. He was a pitcher. He was, and he was very good. And uh, as you know from the story, he, by an act of pure serendipity, a baseball scout for the Chicago Cubs was driving by one day and watching this pickup game among the minors. And he was, sat down and watched Earl and was so impressed by Earl as a pitcher, that he offered him a a minor league uh, contract. So Earl's life took this first dramatic turn away from the mines to the life of a a minor league baseball pitcher with aspirations and ambitions to be a, a major league pitcher. So that's when his life made its first profound swerve, you might say, from the life he thought he would be leading to the one he then took up. And that's what you mentioned in the book. He had an uptick, if you will, in life that he could not even imagine himself until the scout made his life totally different than it was. And he realized there was life outside the coal mine and off he went. Exactly. I th- I, I'm paraphrasing myself badly, but I think the line is something like he uh, was being offered a dream he didn't even know a man could dream. Uh, um, yeah. and, and, and that, and that's, uh, when he, uh, as I say, that's when he became this smiling pitcher and proved himself to be a, quite a good pitcher, even at that level. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So he took off and then he was of course being paid at that time. He did not have to work in the mine anymore. And when he left, he did not go back to the mine at all, right? Oh, that's, yes, that is right. Um, He became just fully, fully immersed in, uh, committed to uh, his life as a baseball player. He 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 loved it just uh, unfathomably. And and why not? Uh, you know, to be rescued from uh, a coal mining life, which he didn't really hate, but he certainly didn't relish it in the way that he immediately uh, relished the life that he took up as a as a Class B pitcher with, as I say, some real ambition to get better and better. All right, very well. Now they traveled the team on. A Pullman train. The trains that had the Pullman cars, is that how the team got from city to city to city? Well, there, there, there is a Pullman train trip, as you, as you know, that is very, very important 
uh, in the book. Oh, it's very significant. But that comes a little later. The I, uh, I think the teams mostly did travel by train, yes. But I doubt that they uh, they sat in the Pullman cars. I'm guessing oh, okay. they were up, up front with the with the rest of the folk as the teams traveled from, uh, you know, the, the 3I League, it was called. And it really was uh, a minor league. Um, and the I's are Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana. Which is where the various teams that played were located. And I'm right next to Indiana as we speak. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Absolutely. Now, what happened when the train stopped and the team went out to a, uh, what did you call it in the book? You called it a luncheon et. Yes, yes. And tell them something very significant happened <laughs> in the luncheonette. And what would that happen to be? The team was uh, expected to play um, a visiting team from, I believe it was Rock Island, Illinois. And the Rock Island team's train broke down about 20 miles or 10, 12 miles from, from the town where Earl was playing in Waterloo, Iowa. So the team had, you know, all the energy that they would have expended in a game still kind of stoked up. And they decided to go have a late uh, dinner at this uh, place called the Good Day Luncheonette in Waterloo. And it was there as Earl came in with a bunch of his teammates and they were kind of behaving. I think I described them as behaving like boisterous boys at recess kind of shoving and, you know, moving past each other in good-natured way. And Earl spotted one of the two waitresses who worked at the luncheonette, whose name was Emily Marchand, and he was immediately sort of love-struck when he saw her. And that is how, I mentioned him earlier in our conversation, but that is how Earl and Emily met. Um, he and his teammates came there for a meal, and she was the waitress who helped serve the meal. And they immediately developed this kind of banter back and forth. And he was just so taken with her. And she was taken with him in, I think, a little more gradual way. But she she felt his energy, uh, just his absolutely kinetic energy, which he always had. And so she was very intrigued by Earl. And he was almost immediately just besotted with her. So that was the beginning of Earl and Emily's love. So you had initially the son with an abusive uh, father, a job that he didn't really care for, but luckily by virtue of something it took an author like you to think about, the scout came along and pulled him out of that and his love for baseball got him out of that right bad situation but then he fell in love with emily and that was to change his life forever and yes they even had a child and that took the book in another direction as well yes absolutely they had a son yes uh, young henry yes Um, henry the son and eventually as athletes do He cannot remain an athlete like that the rest of his entire life. I think when you're 30, 
you're starting to get old. Oh, for sure. And um, yeah, um, I, I, I won't go into all the minutia of, of the setting that all this happened, but you're exactly right in describing it. And there came a time in Earl's life as an athlete when he had an injury and that ended his athletic days entirely. But by that time, his life had already uh, taken a really defining next step, which included his uh, relationship with Emily and their and their having their son. By that point, he he was mostly uh, involved with Emily's family, a farming family, and so you know he really had about if you count them, maybe four stages of life. Earl, um, starting from a twelve-year-old working in the coal mines to a baseball pitcher to a farmer, and then as a rather compromised later in life. So the book tries to just tries to follow him through all those stages and to watch how he is able or less able to accommodate the changes that um, face him and sort of redefine. You know, the title, The Beckoning World, uh, is really uh, in part a way of trying to say uh, what happens to us when the worlds that beckon us uh, shift um, and how can we get the world to still be a kind of a, a beckoning thing that we want to uh, be called to. So Earl, as as he moves through his life, has several worlds beckoning him. Right. Now, I have known football players that were pro. I have known baseball players that were pro. And when their candle snuffs out of their career, I have seen them do a variety of things in a variety of different businesses. They reinvent themselves. And I remember in the book, does not Earl discuss with his love of his life, Emily, would you mind and would it bother you if I became a farmer. And mm, she supported mm. it. She supported it. I, I would say that his uh, his move to be a farmer was more a matter of uh, a decision he had to make um, because Emily all along was very much uh, advocating that change. Yes. She, as much as she loved Earl, um, and that's as, this is where I talk about just the complexities of love, she had great reluctance to follow him along in his baseball life. And she really, you know, she was very dismayed at herself for not being able to think uh, more broadly about what life would be like if she were the wife of a baseball pitcher. And so she really uh, uh, sort of made her statement that she just wasn't sure, you know, she could do that. So this is what faced Earl, this classic fork in the road, if you will, to continue his life as a baseball pitcher, a love that was almost uh, uh, just immeasurable, or to sacrifice that life and take up a marriage and a life with Emily, whose love was every bit as deep and in a very different fashion. So one of the early, uh, one of the early, um, uh, complexities that I I wanted to explore when I was thinking of this story was what does a person do when he has that decision facing him? Um, And what uh, what are the factors that figure in to how he uh, makes his decision? So that's really a very, very, very important turning point in the book. Yes. Now, what about him being a pitcher do you think bothered Emily? The fact that he would be away from home or the fact that she would, in order to be a wife really have not much of a home life herself or was it a variety of things how would you best describe 
her uneasiness with it. Well, what you just mentioned is was certainly a, an enormous factor weighing on her hesitation. And I had, you know, I, I I understand where Emily was coming from there. I mean, it was a it was a very risky life. It was full of uncertainty. Lord knows it wasn't a prosperous life at the level he would have been starting. And for all those reasons, she uh, was given pause and and uh, was concerned about it. I think you, you're you're quite right when you say it was just this mass sense of of an uncertain life that uh, she couldn't really kind of think through in a way that felt positive to her. And she was full of guilt for that because, as I say, you know, she was very much in love. With but it's that. Also, uh, there's a lot in the novel that shows Emily's background. She was raised with a very, very, very loving father and mother, the very opposite of Earl's early life. And she was used to, to that kind of, you know, just enveloping love and security. And that was really kind of part of what formed her temperament, if that makes sense. Right. And then the book deals a lot with that conflict in the two worlds between the protagonist, Earl mm -hmm. Dunham, and then the love of his life, Emily. It was a friction, you might say, but not a bad one. It was something they had to mature into to deal with. And the reason that maturity happened is because, didn't, didn't you say in the book where Earl kept wondering later on in his life where all this excitement went in his athletic career. Yeah. And no, then you yes. can tell, tell the people, where did that excitement go? Well, it what went did it in... blossom into? Let me ask that. What okay. did the excitement blossom into? Between Earl's uh, decision, uh, as I just tried to describe it. And, and I think what you're referring to, there were years uh, of a kind of a, let's say a compromise um, where he was, he was pitching for a, a semi-pro team. And again, this is one of these serendipitous uh, moments in his life when he found himself pitching in an exhibition game in this town where they were living in Sioux City, Iowa, to an exhibition team that included Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, who were moving through the country after the World Series of 1927 in October, playing what they called a barnstorming tour, traveling across the country, starting in New York, going all the way across, ending up in Los Angeles, and making all these stops along the way to play in these relatively small towns, including the one Earl lived in. And and this is all quite historically true. And this is actually what gave me the idea for the book in the first place. I read an article in the newspaper that described this tour, which actually took place. And one of the towns they played in, historically accurately, was Sioux City, Iowa. And I thought, wow, there's a story there if I can just begin to think about it. So uh, there was this moment, this exhibition game when Earl was pitching against Babe Ruth. And, well, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig were mentioned all throughout that book. Uh, they were the yes. idols, if you would. You included them a lot. And it was not a love story, uh, but I mean, there was admiration there between your protagonist and the great Babe Ruth and Gehrig, as there was for both of those individuals from athletic fans all over, you know, the world. They loved those two. 
Oh my God, that's so true. And, and again, in doing research for the book and reading biographies of both both Ruth and Gary, it's hard for us as as much as we understand how important sports are to our our country today. It's hard. It was hard for me anyway to really get to really imagine just how uh, legendary, almost mythic, uh, particularly Babe Ruth, but. Ultimately, Gehrig, too. He was much younger. He was about a decade younger. But when Babe Ruth was at the height of his fame, when he hit 16 home runs that same season, he was, according to some measure, the third most famous man in the world. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, they really were just like God. And oh, yeah. I mean, imagine, imagine that. I mean, these two figures descending sort of from the ether on this little town and playing an exhibition game and what the impact of that would be to have um, these, these two living legends walking among you. Right. Well, the protagonist yeah. in your book, Earl Dunham, that would be the, the main character, of course. Uh-huh. The yes. book, your book starts, as you mentioned earlier, when he was 12 years of age in the coal business, you might say, quote, mm-hmm. unquote. And it follows him from age 12 to the early 50s, uh, when he's in his early 50s. Now, a lot of people have written reviews and so forth and so on about your book. I've read many of them, not just two or three, but my favorite one of all of them, I would like to read right now, if you know who Lee Woodruff is. Can you tell the audience who that would be? Um, I I don't know Lee personally, but I know of her professionally, and she's a very well-known writer, and she... uh, uh, does a kind of a, a blog and a newsletter that uh, keeps up with uh, with what's being going what going on in the publishing world these days. Just a very you know a, a voice that's listened to um, with 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 great interest um, as she as she knows the landscape of of the publishing world. Right. She has written a book entitled Those We Love Most, and she is the co-author of one of the number one New York Times bestseller books called In an Instant. And here is what she had to say about your book, The Beckoning World. Quote, a beautiful slow cooker of a novel that examines what it means to love, follow your dreams, and to bend your aspirations for the people you love. To bend your aspirations for the people you love. Now, is that not what the protagonist ended up in his life, in your book, doing because of his love for his dear Emily? It's exactly it. And uh, Lee says it in about two sentences. Oh, she's efficient. (laughs) I like this lady. She's efficient with words. Yes. She really is. Yeah. Um, and as, as, as you and I have been talking this morning, it's taken me, you know, 45 minutes to say what she said in about 
about <laughs> two sentences. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I totally was thrilled when I saw her words about it. And just, it gets it right at, at the center of it all. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is so true. Ladies and gentlemen, it is published by the University of Iowa Press. The novel is called The Beckoning World, and it's by our guest today, Douglas Bauer. It is about what happens to you when you fall in love. It is a novel. I mean, this is not a true story. And hey, what's wrong with a little entertainment? And what's wrong with a good love story? If it's not the singers and the musicians and the musical artists trying to tell everyone what love is, it's the authors and the artists of words such as yourself. There is not a thing wrong with it. And what does Paul McCartney say? Some people want to fill the world with silly <laughs> love songs. And what is wrong with that? And he he agrees it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. But you know what? People are liking the book. You've got the nondescript child coming up from a uh, an unhealthy home environment, the coal business with which nobody has ever claimed to be exciting. But then the excitement starts to happen because of his love and his talent yes. to be a baseball pitcher. And then, of course, it goes on to that little luncheonette where they all got out and started acting like a bunch of immature, rowdy kids. But over there was one of the two gals in the luncheonette that was to make a significant interest in the protagonist Earl's life. And it would be, and not only that, but then they would have a son. So now you had a love story between the parents and the son. You had it all going on for heaven's sake. <laughs> Lord almighty Douglas, what what the hell were you thinking? Just what a potpourri, a, a tossed salad? What was going on in your mind with all of this? Well, I have to say that, you know, the story just kind of kept growing growing on me. I only had the roughest outline of what Earl and Emily's story would be like. I knew that I wanted the, to, uh, a, a young man and a young woman to meet, and uh, I wanted to I wanted to explore these issues that you've just been describing so well, Rick. But as one thing happened, you know, the, my imagination just kind of kept saying, well, let's see what would happen if they had a son. Let's see what would happen if this next thing complicated uh, their lives. And uh, a good friend of mine, a writer friend of mine said, uh, and, and she said for her, and I think it fit with me too, it's like when you're writing a novel, it's like uh, you're stringing beads and you just keep, you know, adding a bead to the string and you just kind of let the shape of it and the size of it almost be dictated by how, how much you want to keep adding those beads. Absolutely. I just think when a man does love a woman, things happen. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I'm going to try to be as economical with the words as Lee Woodruff is with her mastery of it. But how about things happen, people change, mm. and you know what? They don't regret the change because as Lee Woodruff said, you 
suspend your aspirations for the people you love. And you know what? I don't see anything wrong with that. Oh, my goodness, no. Um, my only, uh, only not, it's not a quibble. It's not that at all. But I don't, I'm uh, one of the things I was so interested in thinking about was, you know, what what happens uh, to the person who cannot bend his aspirations or her aspirations. Uh, that is not Earl, I, I want to make clear. Uh, but it's, you know, it's not... It, Everyone is not as capable of uh, of bending aspirations and and really redefining their ambitions, which are is very hard to do when you've had such a certain sense of what you were ambitious for, and then you had to kind of you know pause, take stock, and see how you could, in her words, bend them. But not everyone is as capable of that, I don't think. And so that that sort of tension, let's call it. You used the word friction a while ago, and that's a good good word too. Friction, tension. What happens when that is there and you have to kind of accommodate it? So that's really what my exploration, I think, apart from just telling the story, that's if, if you want to call it thematic, that's what my thematic uh, interest was in, in writing this novel. Okay, you have a Hollywood starlet, for example, did very well in the motion picture industry, let's say. Or we could make it not about motion pictures at all. Perhaps she was a musical artist, did very well. And as time goes on, well, the record contracts dry up. The movie deals dry up. But you know what? These people go on. If they're smart, if they've managed well, they can go on. They can travel. They can see the world. They can give lectures on the lecture circuit, bring their significant others with them. Everything is great. It's not the hoopla that you had when it was all the excitement years, like what Earl had in his baseball playing days. Yeah. But yeah. you can go on and live a fulfilling life. And the love that you get from your the love of your life makes up for all that. You do not need the excitement that you once craved as a young party in, let's say, your 20s. Mm-hmm. You know, my only comment would be that uh, not everyone is is able to, to be as flexible and to redefine life. I guess it really doesn't, doesn't it, in some way, uh, when you're faced with that moment of, of needing to bend, then what your aspirations were that are threatened begin to define themselves. You begin to say, well, what was it about that life that was so important to me that I didn't think I'd ever have to give up? It, I think it really helps for for that whole kind of momentum of what you thought was essential to kind of be broken down and looked at and decisions made on the basis of, of what you could part with with what you could uh, kind of reshape what was essential, what wasn't. I'm guessing to some degree, but good Lord, I've, I've certainly been in a much less dramatic way. I mean, we all have those moments of having to bend our aspirations. And I think that's sort of what goes on when you come to that point. Is it not normal, Douglas, for people to reinvent themselves as they age? I think it is. And I think, again, you know, the, the healthy person can do it successfully and enrich 
themselves by redefining themselves. The the person who isn't able to do that has a much more miserable future that uh, she or he is looking at. But yeah, by all means, uh, if you if you are large enough and generous enough uh, in your uh, look at life, um, you can find uh, ways to redefine it that you didn't realize you even needed to do until it came time to do it. And then there are people, I will not be mentioning any names, <laughs> but they're young. They're in the rock and roll business. They score. They get a contract. They have a hit, maybe two, maybe three. But it all eventually is going to come to a screeching halt and they cannot handle it. And they do what I call, they hit the time clock and they check mm. out. Mm. And this yeah. is what happens when you don't keep an open mind and do what the protagonist in your book did. Say, I'm going to be 40. I cannot do what I have been doing in my 20s. It has to end. I love this party. This party loves me. We <laughs> both love our son and what's best for them. And they do it and they don't think twice about it. Although it creates a lot of good banter and, and it's good for the reader because you've got all of this going on. But like I said at the beginning of the show, Douglas, is, the, is not this book a primer on what happens when you fall in love? Is that not my my economy of words version <laughs> of it? Um, that is the takeaway. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. I remember here in Ohio and throughout America, if you go get food, you get it to go. That's what they say. <laughs> Order it to go, order it to go. Then I found myself in Nassau, the Bahamas for two weeks straight. And they don't, you don't order anything to go. It's called, you order it to take away. Yeah. And, the, yeah. and you look at the shop and it's such and such food shop, take away. <laughs> so the takeaway from the book is this is what love is. It is a primer on how to bend your aspirations for the people you love. And in this book, Douglas, you've done a great job in it. I want to recommend it. It's called The Beckoning World, a novel by our guest today, everyone, Douglas Bauer. That's B-A-U-E-R. You have a website, Douglas www.douglasbauer.com. And if I'm not mistaken, your email is info at douglasbauer.com. Or how can somebody reach you if they would like to uh, send you a line? Well, uh, that email address will do it. And um, and they can also visit the website and get to me that way. So um, I'm 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 available uh, with all those all those uh, website addresses. Right. And I just will say it is an entertaining and uh, very sincere fictionalized novel. And but you know what? I I don't see anything wrong with it. You're not the first that's written a love story, and you're certainly not going to be the last. But this is a good one, and that's why we wanted you to come on the show. It's just a marvelous story. 
It is called The Beckoning World. And Douglas, tell everybody where they can get the book and how to go about it. Sure. Well, thanks for that. And thanks for all your kind words. Um, uh, it's available by any you know, uh, online book source. Amazon, of course, Amazon.com, uh, Barnes & Noble dot com bookshop dot org org and uh, or they can go to my website douglasbauer dot com and there's a place there where you can just click on and order it that way. Very well. Now at your college, a uh, Bennington College. What are the students asking you about how they can become a writer such as yourself? Do you hear the same questions over and over again? And if you do, what do you tell those kids? You know, it's it really does depend on the student, on the person. I wouldn't say that there's anything that's kind of generically asked of, of me. It really breaks down to their work and what, what are the particular issues that are unique to their work. And that's really where the conversation um, resides, if you will. Somebody might be having trouble figuring out how to make a character uh, alive on the page. Another student might be having some concerns about whether the dialogue that they're writing uh, sounds credible and, and engaging. Pacing, how to manipulate time as it passes. And one of the things that, uh, that this novel that you and I are talking about, my novel, uh, it really moves through time in a very kind of complicated way, back and forth. That's often uh, a, a real uh, challenge for a, a young writer is just how to how to manipulate time in, 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 in fiction. If I could take you back to Miami University briefly, they taught yeah. us about writer's block. What do you ah. do? What do you tell the kids about writer's block? How are you going to cure that? I tell them just to read more and just to even choose a writer they like to read copy by hand some passages from one of the books of the writer you like. Get a sense for how the sentences work, the rhythm. Uh, get a sense of that writer's vocabulary, how he uses, he or she um, uses the language. And you, I've often found, I've never, thank God, I've never had any serious writer's block, but I've often found when I'm sort of stuck that it's tremendously revealing to literally just write uh, out longhand uh, a passage from a, a, a book you love and you'll immerse yourself in the the whole world of, of, of language in a, for me in a very unique way. So I often uh, prescribe that, if you will. Well, there we go. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest for the last hour on Rick Flynn Presents has been Mr. Douglas Bauer, B-A-U-E-R, douglasbauer.com info at douglasbauer.com if you'd like to drop him a line university of iowa press has published his book the beckoning world a novel if you like love if you like baseball if you like correct parenting if you like communication between the couple, all the good things in life, and a little bit in his early life with the the uh, the home life, a little bad there uh, to kind of mix in. And when you get that, at least I guess maybe in your college teaching days, you might have seen students that perhaps had the alcoholism in the family. And did you ever see your own students get out of it? Um, get out of that. I mean, situation. leave the home. 
You know, I don't know that I don't. Or know you don't get that deep. Uh, I mean, usually not. Right. So I, I don't have a firsthand experience uh, that I could offer you up, but um, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it happened. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, I'm sure. And, it. you know, and I've certainly seen I've certainly seen student writing that uh, that makes mention of of situations like the one I use in the, in the novel. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, some genius uh, up, in, up at Miami years ago. Actually, I don't think it had anything to do with the college. This, I'm sure it was a state issue back during the 1970s, Doug, they said, well, this 6% alcohol, this is too much for these kids. We're going to have 3-2 beer. Do you happen to remember what 3-2 beer was? I don't, but my my father talked about that. Oh, um, yes. Uh, you know, when he was a kid and uh, uh, he was in the he was in the army and he was used to three two beer in Iowa. Right. And yeah. where he where he was stationed, you know, was much more potent. And he tells the story of the first time he was out at a bar as a young soldier. Uh, he got so drunk so fast on on a six percent beer that he fell off the bar stool and they had to carry him out. <laughs> well, let so, me. You're never gonna believe this, Doug. You're never gonna believe it. <laughs> but if you're at Miami, you and it's the 1970s, early. Guess how you take three two beer and turn it into six. I right, take a wild guess. No, no, you have to tell me. I wouldn't have a clue. You drink more of it. You drink twice <laughs> as much. And that's exactly what they were doing. While the Lemon uh, Pipers with their number one record, listen while I play, yay, 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 my green tambourine. They were from Oxford, Ohio. The oh, Lemon yeah. Pipers, they were on top of the charts. And a lot of people remember uh, uh, that song Black Betty by Starstruck, which later mm. became Ram Jam. Yo, Black Betty, Bam the Lamb, that one. They were from okay. Oxford. Oh, my. They had all kinds of entertainment going on. You took the 3-2 beer, you just drank twice as much, and it <laughs> did not make a hill of beans difference that you didn't have six. I don't know what genius concocted the idea, but I'm telling you, Douglas, it was a royal failure. <laughs> yeah, there are ways around it, that's for sure. Isn't for that sure. the truth? Thank yeah. you for coming on, my friend. I hope you had a great time. I did indeed, thanks to you. It was really a lot of fun. I'll tell you what, I don't believe there is such a thing anymore as 3-2 beer. And you know what, Douglas, I think that's probably a good thing. Uh, seems like a good thing to me, yeah, yes. Right. Once again, everybody, the novel, The Beckoning World, and that's by Douglas Bauer, B-A-U-E-R, our guest here today. It is a publication of the University of Iowa Press. On behalf of myself and our guest today, author Douglas Bauer, this is Rick Flynn speaking. It's been fun, but I've got to run. Pick up the book, The Beckoning World, anywhere that books are sold. And you can get it. You'll have a great time. What a wonderful book. Thank you again, Douglas, and good luck to you. I hope this book is a very good success for you. Thank you for coming on the show, sir. Oh, it was such a privilege. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Good night, everyone. New show next Wednesday. We'll see you then. Good night. 
The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking.